Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello, I'm Edelam, um, sitting here at Queen's University Belfast and speaking today to my long-term mentor and research collaborator, Professor Kate Chedsoy at the University of Newcastle. And we're delighted today to be able to talk about our shared interests in early modern childhood and literary cultures. So it's so lovely to be able to do this with you, Idel, even though we can't be together on this occasion um, to have an you know, in-person conversation where we have on many previous times, um, being able to have this connection around shared interests in this time when there's been so much separation and connection has been a challenge is really lovely. Um, so... Um, I'm going to take a little moment to introduce you a bit more formally now. So Adele, as she says, is um, in the School of English at Queen's University, Belfast. Um, before that, she's also worked in Australia and in Dublin um, and has a really wide range of research interests across early modern culture. But the central thread of your research has always been a deep interest with children and childhood. Your PhD, which generated your first book, was on children as performers in theatre. And that book was called Performing Childhood in Early Modern Theatre, published in 2009 with Paul Grave. And then Reading Children in Early Modern Culture followed it in 2018, also with Paul Grave. And in terms of thinking about your intellectual journey as a scholar of early modern children and childhood, those two key terms appear in the titles of both your books. And I guess I'm just wondering if there's a story behind the shift from performing childhood to reading children. Yes, thanks, Kate. Um, well, I mean, in a sense, there was, as you, as you mentioned, this work has really evolved from my, my doctoral research and, and um, that, that was specifically on the children's playing companies um, of the early 17th century. And I came to it not through an interest in, in childhood per se, but an interest in performance and in early modern theater. Um, and the questions that I asked um, of those companies initially was um, very much about what was distinct about them, what, what was not distinct, how did they compare to the other playing companies of the time. But, but through in doing that, um, I, I really asked the question of what did it mean that they were defined as children's playing companies? What did it mean to be um, defined as a child in, in the institution of theatre? at that time. Um, but of course, to, to answer that question, I had to look beyond theatre too. Um, and I turned then to other sources to think about what, what it meant to be a child in the 16th and 17th centuries. And um, how, how was that understood? 
um, and how, how was it experienced. Um, and as a literary historian, I turned to books to, to, to try and find the answer to that. Um, so I looked, for example, at um, courtesy manuals, to conduct manuals, to educational tracks, to see how um, teachers, parents, and um, authors for, of, from all backgrounds were um, imagining um, children and were talking about them and how they were advising them um, to, to behave. And through the process of doing that, I um, noticed that a lot of these books were addressed to this imagined child reader that they um, anticipated that the, the um, a, a young person would, would read this book and learn from it generally in some way. So um, I, my, my question um, about readers really came from that. Um, how, how many books were written, what types of books were written with, with the child in mind? And did children actually read those books? Um, and if they did, what did they do with the, the knowledge um, that they gained from that? How did they use that reading material? Um, in their lives uh, to imagine themselves. Um, so I think that's, that's where kind of the questions um, came, came from. Uh, that last point seems really crucial to me in relation to the transformative implications of the work that you do in reading children in early modern culture. That shift from um, a history of reading materials, um, a history of books, produced for children, which is in some ways an unexaminedly dominant aspect of the history of children's literature, the, which was takes its um, origin stories from a moment when the commercialization of children's literature um, being produced by adults and marketed, sometimes directly to children, more often to parents came into being. Um, a shift away from that kind of material history of the book oriented approach to one which tries to centre the children, which notices that adults are imagining a child through the reading material they produce for them, and then tries to imagine that child's point of view, to imagine what it might have been like to be that child, to look at the adults from the child's perspective. So, the kinds of sources that you've already listed, did they help you get into that child's point of view or did you have to look at other kinds of material? Yes, um, absolutely. It was, that was such a huge part of the, of the, the research um, behind this book. And um, I, I started with precisely the type of sources that, that I've mentioned already. And I was incredibly lucky to um, have funding from the Irish Research Council to spend some time based in, in Dublin doing some of that early research and then from the Australian Research Council um, for a period when I was based in, in Sydney to really continue that, that kind of search and, and that uncovering of just the, the vast range of books produced for children or intended for them in, in some way. Um, but what I find as, as I developed that project was that um, that, that question of, of the, the child's experience or the, the child's um, point of view um, of, of these books was one that really interested me um, but that one that is, is so difficult <laughs> um, to, to answer. So I turned um, to a range of sources and I looked at um, marginalia um, to, to kind of looked at the annotations on, on these books and um, so for example um, kind of one of 
my great excitements was when I was over in, in Newcastle with you giving a seminar and found kind of um, on, had time to look at the, the school libraries collection there and all these annotations by um, 17th century boys on, on some of their textbooks um, and how they engaged with each other um, not, and in fact didn't engage with the reading material at all but used those blank pages um, to, write, to write notes to each other. We got a re real sense of kind of the, the schoolboy community um, came across from that. Um, but I also then looked at, I suppose, accounts of reading experiences. And so often, again, it's written from the adult's perspective that the children um, rarely kind of write that at the time. But by looking at um, autobiographies and life writing, I was able to kind of think about how the, those experiences of reading were represented, um, albeit retrospectively. Um, and the other thing I looked at, I suppose, were were children's notebooks. Um, so Rachel Fain is, of course, someone that we, we've both thought about a lot um, and her translations um, her her notes that seem very much to have been part of her schooling, um, but were very clearly engaging with, with the books that she was, she was reading. Um, and she did that both um, in terms of kind of very straightforward school exercises, but also in her creative writing that she, she produced as a teenager, that she was engaging with the material that she had read and um, really doing that in really creative and, and interesting ways. So there's a kind of shift in perspective from the adult looking at the child to the child looking not only at the adult, but at the whole textual cultural world that adults offers children. You've traced that, but but you've also opened up in the account you gave just then of your process in researching that book, something much bigger and I think really exciting, which is about how we can get outside that adult-child dichotomy and look at children's relationships with each other. So that um, evocation of a community of schoolboys using the print materials they're provided with by their teachers not to engage with the curriculum, not to engage with the teachers, but to construct relationships with each other, or the thinking you've done about how Rachel Fain's manuscripts give us insight into her relationships with other children, with her siblings, with her cousins, with other youthful members of the household. Could you share a little bit more about um, the challenges and rewards of thinking about childhood in that way and um, what insights the work you've done there have to offer to the study of early modern childhood or indeed methodologically to the history of childhood across periods. Yes absolutely and that's I mean there was so often I find that the the evidence I suppose if that's what I was looking for of um, children's reading and, and writing um, came in either in one of two ways it was either through that interaction with with an adult whether it was kind of with a teacher in school or with with a parent um, or came through the, those communities of children and through through um, through writing together engaging with each other and the the home siblings riddle book is, is another example and um, that I looked at to try and trace that and I suppose one of the the main arguments I would make about that is that um, how we define children is very much um, dependent on, on the context 
um, of reading um, and, and also uh, of writing um, that it is. Um, so for example, those sibling relations um, it, young young people reading and writing together in the household is, is one way in which um, they are shaped and which they, they read and write uh, as children. Um, and we can, we can see that in the writing that they produce and which, the ways in which they draw attention to and imagine kind of their, their youth uh, and those sibling bonds, for example. Um, and equally the schoolroom um, and kind of reading done there is another, another important context for thinking about it, that these, um, so for example, I looked um, at the schoolboy in, in one of the chapters of the book, and they're very much defined by that that status, by that the position in, in a wider and bigger, larger institution or larger context. So, I mean, in a sense, um, that was really interesting for me too, because it was where my research had started, thinking about what it meant to be a child in the theatre, um, I find has, con has continued to be um, such an important element um, of, of, my, of my research that it's these institutions and contexts and how or what they imagine a child to be um, and how that constitutes childhood and it constitutes then the individual's experience um, of being a child, that you, you can't separate those things. Yeah, so there's something really powerful and important about the institutional and social spaces in which childhood is lived, but um, but in making that move to centre the child and their records of their own childhood um, and their, the ways in which they make sense of it. Um, you've also, I think, opened up a set of methodological questions about how we can think about children's perspectives. And, you know, and we've spoken previously about the whole question of agency which is such a key term in the history of childhood and such a, a problematic one in some ways so in terms of what your work brings to those debates about childhood and agency what do you think are the the key reflections that have emerged for you from working on the kinds of material you have um yes absolutely i think um for we start so often the, the kind of evidence um, that remains and, and that we look to are, are exemplary children who have in many ways um, exerted an element of agency and that they, their accounts of, of their reading so often um, remains to us through, the, through their writing and, and through kind of staking a claim for um, fashioning the self in many, in many ways. Um, however, at the same time, I think uh, the ways in which these children are all in some state of um, dependency and some sort of relationship, um, whether that's um, with each other um, or with these these kind of adult figures of, of teachers and parents and, and guardians um, who who shape their who shape and, and are part of their reading experiences um, to that to kind of claim agency is sometimes um, going too far. Um, and again, that, that's so often um, found in the, that so much of my evidence comes via these other perspectives too. Um, but, and that my, uh, I've really enjoyed um, shifting that focus to the kind of the, these accounts by, by children um, of their own experiences, but so often it's filtered through um, that, that adult perspective. There's real 
insistence in the book on thinking through all of those issues in a way that is, <coughs> excuse me, um, analytically complex that weaves together not only age as a category of analysis, but also considerations in particular of gender and of social status. Um, so I think there are kind of two lines of inquiry that, that follow from highlighting that potentially. One is about um, the constraints of status in particular on the kinds of material that we have access to and the kinds of children whose lives and whose perspectives on the world it's very difficult to find out about. And, and the other is about the specificity of the analyses that flow from your methodological commitments of the texts that we do have access to. And particularly, I think, in the comments that you've been making so far around gender, the way that there are different kinds of institutional social spaces that boys inhabited and that girls inhabited. So, so two possible lines to think about there. I imagine if you want to take them one at a time or yeah, well, in a, and in a sense, um, the, the, well, the book's almost in, in three three parts, um, and the first two chapters are very much thinking about um, how textual cultures imagine childhood, and and these the children themselves perhaps don't don't have um, as much of a, a role or presence, or indeed any agency in that. And it looks at how um, prefaces uh, imagine them as learners learning to read, or as youths who might be interested in a particular type of book. But then the second part really tries to bring together um, kind of my long-term interest again in, in, in thinking about, about gender as such an important category um, with this question of age. And I do that through chapters, one on the boy and, and one on the girl, and thinking um, about how we need to attend to both age and gender in, in thinking um, both about culture, cultures of reading um, and, and in, in literary cultures um, more, more generally in the, in the period. Um, and in terms of status, we've spoken about this a lot before, um, and as I've been suggesting already, so so often the examples of the boys or the girls um, are those exceptional um, readers. Um, they, they kind of the evidence remains to us um, because they are highly literate, um, because they come from very privileged backgrounds, and and the material has has been preserved in some way. Um, so I I think one of the things that the I would have liked um, to do more of uh, and yet haven't found a way to yet is um, to think about those examples of um, young people participating in these literary cultures um, al alongside others to kind of um, how does that I mean apart from acknowledging that that is a, an experience that differs vastly according to your social background um, I, I think that's something that that still needs to be addressed is really how, how much and in what ways that experience is different um, depending on your social status. Yeah, and that then raises, I think, a whole fresh set of methodological challenges, doesn't it, about where we might possibly be able to find evidence that would enable us to 
get some sense of non-elite children's lives and how we would read it, how we would analyse it. So um, Laura Gowing's current work on young women um, who were apprenticed um, in early modern London, many of them very close in age to somebody like Rachel Fain, um, around sort of 14, 15 at the time she was writing. Laura's looking at sources that show girls of about that age coming into conflict with their mistresses. There's perhaps glimpses of um, some of the same concerns that you're exploring in the text that you write about, but but the whole institutional framing and the nature of the way the documents of those girls' lives is so different that obviously there are very different questions to be asked. Um, and But yeah, the possibility perhaps of juxtaposing that kind of work that's been done in history and the work that you're doing in literary studies might be quite fruitful as a way forward. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that's, I think, the, the last kind of chapter of the book um, looks at retrospective accounts of, of reading and I've been really interested in, in your work too and what you've been saying about um, thinking about childhood from from life the perspective of life writing or, or autobiography um, and indeed while those um, obviously those writers are kind of ultimately literate and have had access then to education how it might actually shed light back on some different experiences of childhood um, and, and what we might then do do with that with that um, and how that might work um, sit alongside absolutely kind of thinking about apprentices or the the traces that remain to us of of childhood and youthful experience um, that aren't necessarily told by those young people themselves but are evidenced in, in other ways such as court records or depositions yeah yeah no, I think that's right I think it's been the whole keys the whole project of studying early modern children as to the work which in so many ways um, provides the kind of soil that the study of early modern childhood has grown out of work on recovering the voices of early modern women Um, there's so, so much overlap between the kind of population of scholars who've worked on early modern childhood and early modern women that's really that kind of you know Joan Kelly, the enormously influential feminist historian who um, wrote the essay, Did Women Have a Renaissance, which really opened the door in so many ways to the whole area of study on early modern women, said in the early 70s, women will make the world concern itself with children. Um, And that, of course, at one level is a kind of um, taking for granted of a link between women and children that you know as scholars as historians as feminists we might want to subject to critique but it is also realistic because it is primarily women who've done this work um that opening up of the range of texts and of sources that we consider valid and appropriate i think has been really really important and it's really pushed at the boundaries perhaps helped to expand the boundaries of what counts within literary study um, and there's clearly more work to do um, in that direction and one of the very specific calls that you make in reading children in early modern England is for a, a rethinking of the literary canon to include what you call juvenile writing um, so how, how might we actually 
achieve that? What kind of future work might be necessary in order to bring that expansion of the canon about? Well, it's it's something that I'm very, very interested in at the minute uh, and that I'm thinking about very much in my, my current work. Um, in looking at writing um, by by young girls, which is my my project at the moment, but I, I think there's so much to be done um, more broadly, and it's um, something again that has has been done for later periods of history to think about kind of um, juvenile writing as a as a category in itself um, that we could really perhaps not only broaden. Or canon of, of early modern literature, but but challenge um, again um, our concept of what that might be, what it looks like, by by thinking about work work by young writers. Um, I think the biggest challenge again, though, it is always, isn't it, the the evidence, um, uh, and but but a question that I'm often asked is does it does it matter why you know um I've been asked many times about the quality of some some of the the writing by um by younger writers you for example would we um would we necessarily be interested in um diaries or stories that uh, an eight-year-old might be writing right now and um, why should we include that um in our in our canon and um, because of course that's the nature of sometimes what what remains are those um kind of uh you know, a letter, a page from a school book, um, and I think the answer is that um, it's really important to thinking about the history of childhood, but th those questions have also been asked about other material, and it was asked, of course, about um, women's writing um, from, from the period once, yeah. <laughs> once upon a time, and I think um, you've, you've mentioned such an important um, methodological concept again that that has informed thinking about early modern childhood and that that it has in, in many ways gone through stages and even during the time that we've been working on it that um, the first question was about representations of childhood and literature um, and that that has now now broadened to think about um, children's experience of those literary cultures as well as children as active producers um, of, of that culture um, so I I we think there is there's more to do, <laughs> and that mm -hmm. uh, I will continue to insist that um, it, it is is worthwhile. Uh, but certainly, some of the the texts that you find, you are um, three line letters um, to a parent practicing. But even those are so fascinating in terms of how the, these young writers shape um, themselves yeah. and and um, present themselves. So it's not. Um, it's interesting, of course, as evidence of kind of learning and schooling, um, but it can also be really interesting in, in what it reveals about how, how they see themselves and want to present themselves to whoever, the, whoever they're writing to, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, people have asked me that question many times in relation to my research, both on children and early modern writers, and particularly, actually, in um, the context of early modern women's writing, when I was working on writing from um, Scotland, Wales and Ireland in the 16th and 17th centuries when um, the question was asked often with an even greater than usual uh, air of scepticism, could it possibly be any good? So I think the kind of the politics of that question, which is often not a genuine inquiry, but um, encodes a desire to dismiss that which is not already familiar and celebrated yeah, it's always worth um, being aware of that 
political set of overtones, but also I think the, the answer that I want to respond with often is a, a question, um, which is good for what? Um, you know, it may not, you know, might not score five stars in a review online, but, uh, but it might be really good for thinking with about things that really matter. And one of the um, books that I most often return to in, to help me kind of think through how I engage with writing by early modern children, how I understand it, what I can do with it is um, Carolyn Steedman's book, The Tiny Tidy House, with The Tidy House, published in the early 80s, which I first read when I was trained to be a school teacher in 1990, um, and which I found absolutely transformative in my thinking about children as insightful, reflective, complex participants in cultural production. Um, she writes as a former school teacher herself about a story that three little girls, aged about eight actually, the kind of age that you mentioned just now, concocted over the process over the course of a summer term and the richness of her analysis of what that story can tell us about those children in the world they lived in is really extraordinary I think it's a really wonderful model for me um, of how it's possible to do work on kinds of texts that are not necessarily self-evidently literary or that may seem challenging because as you just said they may be fragmentary or decontextualized have survived in a form that makes them quite opaque but um i think the challenges and value of working with that opacity um and having the patience and care to develop the methods that enable us to learn something interesting from doing so. For me, that's, that's really, really important. Yeah. And then equally though, because we've been working together on an essay um, for the Cambridge History of Children's Literature in English, where we look at um, elegies um, for and about, or sorry, about and by um, early modern um, child writers. And you, one of the things I find so interesting about that work is that we're looking really at quite traditional forms and we've been thinking about the those poems um, as um, really kind of literary pieces and thinking about how um, the writers use certain um, conventions in their writings. Um, so another really interesting question is when, when we find evidence like that, um, does it, you know, does it make a difference when, when they're written by young people? Um, are they contributing something to this, um, con what, what's really quite a canonical form? Um, what does it mean if we compare these um, poems by, by children in the period with um, the canon of poetry that, that we're more accustomed to looking at um, from the period? Does it change our understanding of the, the early modern elegy, for example, or, or make, it think of, make us think about it? differently and um, when we when we look at these examples yeah i think that's a really important um question which embeds in it a whole set of other questions about um literary form um about literary periodization about the relationship between a particular literary form and the way that its writers and communities of readers respond to it um as well as kind of looping back actually to some of the questions about education that um, you were talking about earlier. So 
Um, one of the things that really struck me when I started to think about children as writers was how much of their writing is imitative, that it doesn't necessarily have, I think as you might expect, a kind of innocent or naive or artless, you know, kind of straightforward overflow of experience quality. It's not offering us direct access to childhood experience at all. It's actually always written in dialogue with literary existing literary forms so obviously literary forms that children access via adults typically and sometimes we can actually see how that's happening where um, children are being provided with particularly particular literary models so in the context of the elegies that were um, both writing about in that particular essay um, the ones that I focus on are elegies for a young boy, John Friend, who was age 16 at his death when he'd recently become a commoner at Edmund Hall in Oxford. And there's a very well-established convention in 17th century Oxford of the college communities producing memorial volumes containing elegiac poetry when any member of their community dies. So, so the students will have read volumes like this and they kind of know what to do. They know what the expectations are, but they also, of course, approach them at, with different levels of poetic skill and confidence. And I think reading them side by side like that can give you a lot of insight actually into how elegiac form is being read, how it's being perceived, what the emotional and the literary um, possibilities that it offers to readers and to writers in the 17th century are. Um, an elegy I think is particularly rich in relation to that because it is such a an, as such a kind of grassroots form in some ways, you know, and you still see this, of course, that people, ordinary people who are not in contexts like an Oxford college where they're being demanded to write certain kinds of formal verse, nonetheless do reach for poetry often to navigate and find language for dramatic experiences in life. Um, so the very particular ways in which those deep emotional impulses can be given literary form and that young people can be actually trained to do that. I think for me it's really really interesting the kind of intersection there of the of literary history, the history of childhood and the history of emotions is very rich. Yeah and I think that's one of the things that has really fascinated me recently is as you say find you know seeing how um, these young people imitate these conventions but also the those moments um at which they depart from them or, or do use them in really creative ways and, and one of the ways that we have found they do that is to do um really quite striking um emotional work in, in the context of of loss um and it, yeah it's been incredible to see how um the kind of writing by, by the by these children and about um, children can, can do that in such such significant ways. So, in terms of the the really um, significant, serious, emotional and cultural work that children's writing can do, do you want to talk a bit, Idel, about what where your work is going? 
in exploring those possibilities? Um, yes, certainly. And that's, I mean, I've, I've started thinking about those questions um, through my, my case study for, for the piece that we're writing is by looking at the poetry of, of Rachel Fane, who I have mentioned already. And um, Fane is, of course, a fantastic source um, for thinking about um, children's participation in literary cultures, whether as readers um, or as, as performers, because, of course, she and her, uh, she wrote um, performances which she and her siblings um, put on in, in her household. Um, but also for thinking about about children uh, as writers, um, because um, such a, a body of work um, remains in remains in her notebooks that spans, um, as I mentioned already, because school exercises, um, translations, um, drama, and and poetry. So I, I started thinking about through some of these questions really by by working with with that material um, very closely. Um, but um, I'm. I'm starting, I suppose, a project that, that puts that in the wider context of, of writing by girls um, and by thinking about girls produce, producing texts um, in a range of spaces. So whether that's family and household, whether that's as a result of their schooling, um, but also um, by, by starting to think about some of the recurrent themes that, that come up in their writing and we've we've spoken um before about thinking about a play for example um, and playfulness as something that comes comes up in the the writing by children that that we both looked at um but i've also become really interested in protest and um disruptive voices and when um children use their texts um, quite cannily and frame them uh, as texts by young people and as texts by children in a way to license um, a voice and a perspective that might not otherwise make it into print, for example. Um, so I think that's that's where I'd really like to go next to think, see how um, the, these young writers are quite, um, well, sometimes not consciously, but also sometimes very consciously frame themselves as as children or as young um, to, to express um, opinions on um, on kind of their, their rights uh, and um, their, their position in the world. That seems incredibly timely and resonant um, in the present moment, thinking both of um, the, the rise of children's activism over the last couple of years through the school strikes for climate, um, but also even more recently, the ways in which societies are perhaps just beginning to take stock of the impact that COVID has had on children and young people particularly. Um, so that, that thinking about protest um, and resistance by children, um, yeah, a very rich area. And also, I'm aware that another aspect of your research recently has been about riots in <laughs> early modern culture. So there's a kind of opening out beyond the area of the study of childhood into a potentially much broader set of contributions to early modern studies. Yeah, and that's, um, yes, the kind of the thinking about children and protest has been um, informed by both both the things that you've just mentioned, both by my other work on um, riot in the period and when early modern performances provoke riot, and um, but also um, absolutely, um, it's I've, I've come to think about it through um, a real interest in in children 
as activists and also I suppose a kind of a new acknowledgement that that kind of children and young people um, voices um, matter and that, that they they um, that in fact we all now listen to and respond to um, for example the school protests um, but also I mean I've been just in my wider interest looking kind of Greta Thunberg's speeches and um, Malala's um, books and thinking actually about how we, we now really do accord a, a value and a place um, to these young voices and, and how they can make a difference and make us think differently about wider issues, um, about um, environment, um, about kind of um, the rights uh, of the young and of women. Um, so, so it's, yeah, I've um, been really interested and was really interested during um, lockdown to kind of see um, some of the, the writing by young people that kind of emerged and that was circulating um, online, certainly as, as, again, another space in which um, children can actually bring this really distinct perspective um, to the most awful of situations that in fact um, gives us all a new perspective on, on the, the, that experience. So I suppose it, those, those contemporary concerns um, drive and always have, I suppose, driven my work on thinking about early modern children um, might attending to, to kind of their writing, their experiences, um, shed light on, on bigger, bigger questions, bigger issues in the 16th and 17th centuries too. And what can we gain by looking at that? That's really, really powerful. I think, yeah, that's such an important vision for the ways in which our work can make a difference. I think, you know, you end the introduction to reading children early modern culture by talking about the difference that attending to children as readers can make to our study of of that period of childhood of literary culture but that um, much more um, capacious and embracing <clears throat> ethical vision that you've just offered of the value of studying children and creating spaces where their voices can be heard amplifying those voices wherever and whenever they come from um, the difference that can make in our own time in our own worlds it seems such a vital energizing principle for your work and yeah um maybe a great place to leave this conversation holding on to that sense of how important what you're doing is and how important and valuable contribution children have made and continue to make to the world we live in well, thank you it's been really lovely to talk about it yeah it's been great i really really enjoyed this conversation thank you for asking me to take part in it with you thank you for listening to shusai podcasts you can find more materials and features from the society for the history of children and youth online shcy.org